Okay, got your Bibles? If you don't have a Bible, grab one from around the edges of the room. Of course, uh, our tech, we're going to jump around this morning. Our text is going to be on the screen as well. And so uh, let's pray as we get into God's Word today. Lord, uh, we just thank you that we could spend this time with each other and with you, Lord. It is our desire, Jesus, to sit at your feet, uh, to learn of you, Lord, to be taught of you. Lord Jesus, uh, I'm reminded of that discussion that happened between yourself and Mary and Martha, Martha slaving away, seeking to serve those in her household and prepare food, and Mary taking the position at your feet. And that conflict that happened between them, and you, you, you said that Mary was not to be rebuked because she chose the best thing. And Lord, we just want to take that position this morning. We want to uh, set aside the things of life, all the distractions, all the work that's to be done, all the things that we have to do to serve others and serve our families and serve our community, Lord, just to say we want to sit before you, Jesus, and be taught of you and your word and to take that position. And so, Father, I pray that you'd lead us into truth and love. We pray, God, that we would be convicted with regards to sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. We pray, Jesus, that we would have a a spirit of wisdom and understanding that we might know you better. And so, Lord, uh, we just ask your blessing upon this time as we consider the things of your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, sweet. Well, this morning, um, we're participating along with uh, 3,000 churches, at least, across Canada and the U.S. Isn't that awesome? I was really, in, really encouraged by that, to, to hear those numbers, and that was as of the, the start of this past week, and uh, 3,000 churches across Canada and the U.S. teaching on the subject of biblical sexuality. So this morning, what we're doing is just uh, setting aside our series in 2 Samuel to uh, dedicate this Sunday to this particular topic, and uh, this plan of action by the churches, this um, act to pick this subject and to discuss it on the third Sunday of 2022 is a response, actually, uh, to a, a change that happened in our criminal code that went into law on January 8th here in Canada, as you well know, um, Bill C-4. And so just as the church, we recognize this, that our nation is in a transition <laughs> where the state is demanding more and more authority over our bodies, over our words, and over our morality and the state is increasingly moving from the realms of governance and politics into the moral realm and setting itself up as the religious conscience of the people and demanding that we increasingly conform to its values and its beliefs. And that leads to a class, clash of cultures for those who follow Christ Jesus and believe in the kingdom of God or part of the kingdom of God. And so the state, I would say this, is just stewing on this this week, is that the state is becoming more and more religious. And what it's done is it has fashioned an idol in the name of science. Historically, those who, who study these things say this, that historically, when um, nations worship at the altar of what they would call science, they make a slide into totalitarianism. And totalitarianism is simply the politicizing of everything in a nation. And it leads to this. It leads to an erosion of morals where citizens are demanded to 
obey, obedience to the state. It's obedience to the state without questioning. And so this reality is being demonstrated in our nation. Whether we recognize this entirely at this point or, or not, uh, with the addition of Bill C-4 being, becoming part of Canada's criminal code, uh, it's Canadian law that anyone who would speak, think about this, anyone who would speak biblical truths into the lives of those who are in bondage to sexual sins, like homosexuality or transgenderism, would be guilty of breaking the law. And our, our government has adopted a completely one-sided point of view, I would say, that is based on pragmatism and sentimentality. Now, we believe as a church in protecting vulnerable people. Absolutely. 100%. We, we don't believe in the practice of some of the things that is, this bill is seeking to uh, stop and some of the claims of conver conversion therapy. But what we recognize is this, is that Bill C-4 is an overreach. And it's based on sentiment and, practica and, and uh, practicality not based on common sense because it's based on the foolish thinking of debased minds of those who do not give glory to God nor thanksgiving to him. They do not acknowledge God and his eternal power and his divine nature, which the Bible says has been clearly seen throughout the creation of the world. Romans 1 tells us about the reprobate mind. And so what we, what, the conflict that we are in is a conflict a clash of worldviews, one that's based on sentiment, one that's based on sentimentality. And as the church, we want to base our worldview on the word of God. And so I like what I heard this week in one interview where the speaker said this, look, it, we're not interested in changing anything political. I would say this about us as a church. We're not interested in changing anything political. We are interested in spiritual things. This is about the authority of the Bible and the purity of the gospel. Look, church, we don't do politics. We take our stand on the Bible like the prophets and the apostles. Now, Bill C-4 would say this, that the biblical view on human sexuality, and I'm going to read you directly from the preamble of Bill C-4, okay, is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality, cisgender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. Now, this deserves a response from the church. It's like we don't really have a choice. To say that, um, to say that, oh, sorry, to that we would say this, this is exactly what the word of God teaches. It's not myth. It's not stereotype to say that male and female are created by God's design, that his intended purpose for them is to have a healthy sexual expression in the covenant of marriage. So I want to read to you from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. It says this. It'll be on your screen. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, 
Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis tells us that God created human beings in his own image and he created them male and female. And so we see from the word of God that, that, that this is God's design. Now, what's interesting is even when you read this preamble or language that we use in, in our culture, I would just say this, that the term gender, the word gender is actually not a biblical word or concept. God's word simply uses the biological terms male and female, and it wasn't a mistake. There was no mistake in the creative act of God in his, in his creation. Our existence is a result of his creative work. And Genesis says that this is a beautiful thing. It says something beautiful. I think that God created them male and female and he blessed them, commanding them to be fruitful and to multiply, to have children, to have families. By the very nature of biology, God's blessing is reflected in male and female to be fruitful to produce offspring. So to suggest that one can change their gender or that a male could be pregnant is debased. It's a perversion of God's design. And so we're in conflict as a church with the wisdom culture of this world and the word of God. And as your pastor and as a church, uh, we, I would say this, we're not standing up for some political ideology. I don't care. I don't want to be associated with a political party. We are standing up for biblical doctrine and the word of God. And essentially, the newly changed criminal code makes preaching of the gospel illegal. And should you think that I'm exaggerating on that statement, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that at this point, as a Bible teaching church, we will feel the full effects of the criminal code for preaching Will we feel the full force of the law? Well, probably not yet, but that will be a matter that is before the courts. The courts will set the precedence. What I'm telling you is this, the door is now open. The door is open. The criminal code has been changed. But I love what Jesus said. He said this in Luke chapter 16, verse 16 and 17. The law and the prophets were preached until John since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. See, Jesus is saying this, the word of God does not change. So we recognize this, the criminal code can change, but the word of God never changes. And James chapter 1, verse 17 says, every good gift is perf and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I love that about the Lord. There's no shadow in him. There's no variation. First uh, John tells us that God is light. God does not change. And God said this, it's not good that a man should be alone. And so he made a suitable helper. For him and woman, man needed a companion. Man needed a companion who was equal to him, with whom he could find fulfillment, and woman was God's answer for man. Male and female, man and woman. It's a beautiful 
side-by-side relationship. I just love this about creation. It's not one subservient. It's not one lesser to the other. Woman was not made from Adam's head that she should rule over him, and she was not made from his foot that she should be a servant to him. She was made from his rib to be beside him. And Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The two become one flesh. Physical intimacy between a man and a woman, sex, involves not just two bodies coming together to satisfy an appetite. It involves two souls coming together. It involves the very essence of a person being joined to another person. In fact, we would say that in sex, if sex involves the soul, it involves this. It involves that which belongs to God with regards to a human being. We're made in his image. That's why God created a context for two bodies, two souls to come together in a relationship designed for safety and protection in a context where God is honored, even praised, and human needs for intimacy are met, and it is in the covenant of marriage. Jesus was asked about this. In fact, the Pharisees asked him, what would justify a man divorcing his wife? Can a divorce, they said, Happen for any reason. Can a man divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 and 5, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, I imagine that some who approve the change to the criminal code might be responsible you know, kind of surprised by the response of the church. And the reason for that is this, is that they don't build their understanding of marriage and sexuality and gender on the basis of God's word. They have, I would say, a low view of marriage. Marriage is foundational uh, to our understanding of the relationship that Christ has with his church. Marriage is God's design to bring children into the world. Marriage is the structure upon which nations are built. If you don't have marriage, families fall apart. If you don't have marriage, nations fall apart. Children struggle to find their identity. The church falls apart. Marriage is God's design from the beginning. It was the very first human relationship he ever formed. And so what we've seen is, you know, over the years, attempts to redefine marriage, Attempts to redefine human sexuality that moves away from God's design and the simplicity of human biology. And it is the spirit of the Antichrist. It's against God. It is against Christ. It is against the Holy Spirit. Against the word of God, against the church, against the gospel. And look, it is fueled by hell. It is fueled by Satan. Because human sexuality is ordered by God's design. Male and female as assigned by God, which he makes clear by our biology, and a male and a female come together in marriage. Marriage is God's ordered design for our peace, for our blessing, for our fruitfulness, for our righteousness, for the order of society. 
And so we would see, as a church, attempts to redefine marriage and human sexuality as blasphemous. It's against God. And we have to look beyond the definitions and recognize what this is all about. The objective is to destroy that which God has designed. To this conflict, we would speak the word of God in 1 Corinthians 6.13, which says this. The body is not meant for for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. I love this. This is important for us in terms of understanding our identity and our body. The body is not meant for sexual, for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And sexual immorality, for definition's sake, is any sexual act outside of the covenantal relationship in marriage between a man and a woman. Sexual immorality is a broad term that envelops all sexual acts outside of heterosexual relations within the context of a marriage. The Bible is so clear on this that it says this, that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's a serious thing. We can't reduce this discussion down to sentiment and pragmatism. Consider this. Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 5 says this. A man shall not A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Abomination. The Lord says, this is an abhorrent thing to me. It is on par in Scripture with the worship of idols because it is the twisting of God's design. Twisting sexuality And the promotion of gender transitions is an attack by Satan on the nature and the image of God in his creation in mankind. And it's clear that it's not rational. Rational doesn't work. So those who who promote, promote these things are reduced to rhetoric and dictatorial law. Their speech is designed to be rational, but it lacks Logic and common sense. All you have to do is read Bill C4. Leviticus 18.22 says the same thing about a man lying with another man as he would lie with a woman. I want to read to you this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and 11. It says this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. And in the original language, there are two words used here. It's translated just one word, homosexuality, in our English text. But it it expresses the passive and active participants in this behavior. Verse 10. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. And you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. To this church, Paul's writing to a church here. He's writing to people who've put their faith in Jesus. And Paul addresses this issue because people were fooling themselves into thinking that they could live in immorality and still be Christians. Live in immorality 
and be right with God. And the descriptions here are very broad, including sexual, sexual practices that are outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman and other immoral actions. And Paul made it clear. He says this, such people will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's no mincing words. Paul is speaking to the church. To those in the church, he says, that was part of your past life, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in Jesus. And so these practices cannot continue in your life. If God has saved you, you are God's child, and he will clean you up. (laughs) Don't fool yourself. He says, do not be deceived. Don't be led away into error. Don't be led away from the truth or seduced from the narrow path. The first thing he says is that sexual immorality threatens the security of your salvation. You are not on solid ground if you are living in sexual immorality. Now, that doesn't mean that someone who slipped up, who fell into sexual immorality is not going to make it to heaven. Look, we've just been, you know, in our series, 2 Samuel, we've been looking at the story of David and Bathsheba. That was a situation that God redeemed. There was humility and repentance before God when the word of God was brought to David and God forgave. But there were devastating outcomes as we're going to see in the weeks to come for David's family and for his his household. Now Paul here is not talking about people who struggle with such things. There will always be temptations. What he is talking about here is those who flagrantly and blatantly continue in them. And it's clear when you read this text, sexual immorality leads to insecurity in your relationship with Jesus. Those living in such a way will have insecurity with Jesus, and that's okay. We shouldn't feel the need to soothe insecurity, but to call to repentance. We might even ask the question, can one lose their salvation? Others might ask this question, were they ever really saved? Look at either way, the end is the same. 1 Corinthians 6 is uncomfortably clear that those who continue in these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. Look again at 1 Corinthians 6.13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Verse 16 is written, for it is written, the two shall become one flesh. Verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one in spirit with him. You know, the hedonist is the person who lives for the pleasure of the body, but the body, the scripture says, was meant for the Lord. It was designed to be his temple. Your body is designed to be the house of the living God, the place where the spirit of God dwells. Do you not know? That you are God's temple and that God's Holy Spirit dwells in you. And the Lord wants to be one with you in spirit. Closer than the relationship between a husband and a wife. And so 1 Corinthians 6.18 says this. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? 
You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. I love this because this tells us this, that the Lord has noble purposes for your body. So Paul says, honor God, glorify God with your body. Now, what does that look like? It means that I must discipline my body to serve God's design for my sexuality. I train myself. We train ourselves to say no to sin and yes to God because we want the Lord Jesus glorified in us. In Romans 12, Paul, uh, 12.1, Paul says this, we offer our bodies to the Lord as a living sacrifice. It's our spiritual act of worship. So sexual appetites have to be disciplined. They have to be controlled. They have to be confined to the marriage relationship between a man and a woman where there they can be freely and fully expressed. And if one is living in a way that the Bible would define as immoral, sexually immoral, then the result, the need is to repent of sin. And repentance is not simply being sorry. Repentance involves an about face from sin to align with the purposes of God. I would say this, Bill C4 specifically addresses issues of sin that are in conflict with God's creational design and they are creational design on the outside and in conflict with the conscience of a person on the inside. The Word of God, Romans chapter 1, tells us that, that there are two witnesses that God has given to every human being on the face of the earth. This is those who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and those who have not. There is the witness of creation on the outside, which would include the biology of our bodies, And there is the witness of the conscience inside a human being. And Romans 1 says that those who suppress the truth of what is plainly known and is clearly perceived by the observable realities of creation and the inner witness of the conscience, which God has made, are under the wrath of God. That those who suppress creation and conscience are under the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, the Bible says, against all of the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. When we do not glorify God, remember we're to glorify Him with our bodies. When we do not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, the Word of God says that our thinking becomes futile, our hearts become darkened, We become fools and our thinking devolves and degrades and we come under the wrath of God. The wrath of God is an interesting subject in Scripture. Say, well, what is it? Well, I would say this. The Bible compares God's wrath to like drinking from a cup. The prophet Isaiah wrote the people of Jerusalem and he said this. Isaiah 51.7 Drink from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. A passage that I read to our church at the beginning of this whole pandemic was from Jeremiah 25. I told you that at the start, maybe you don't remember this, but it was very significant for me. The, The Lord woke me up in the night at the start of the pandemic and led me to Jeremiah 25 and gave me the, it gave me conviction that this was what was unfolding on the earth. But Jeremiah recorded this, that the Lord instructed him to tell all the nations 
of the world to drink from the cup of his wrath, to become drunk on his wrath, to vomit and to fall and to rise no more. The book of Revelation tells us in Revelation 14 that anyone who takes the mark of the beast will drink the wine of God's wrath poured out in full strength into the cup of his anger. The the outpouring of God's wrath is like drinking from a cup. And what happens is this, is you become inebriated, inebriated. How do you say that? I'm saying that wrong. Inebriated. Like, wow, there's just no humor in this message whatsoever this morning. So I got to mess up somewhere. Drinking from the cup of his wrath, sobriety departs. Thinking is corrupted by drunkenness. You come under the influence of something wrath. Now check out what Romans chapter 1 says. It says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but, th- but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I read that and we would ask the question is this, is, you know, how do you know when the wrath of God is revealed in a culture, in a nation? You know, we err when we think that God's mercy, that it's God's mercy and kindness that allows human beings to continue in sin. That's not mercy and kindness. It's actually his wrath, his wrath that allows us to go on, on the path we're on, destroying ourselves with sin. And Romans chapter 1 gives us three signs of the wrath of God at work in a culture. Number one is the the lust of the heart. There will be a sexual revolution. Check out chapter 1, verse 24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the sign of the wrath of God being poured out upon the nation, a sexual revolution. All we have to do is look around our, our, our nation and we recognize what is going on. Everything is sexualized. Everything is twisted. Men and women are uh, encouraged to pursue every sexual appetite. Our culture is twisting the hearts of our children, seeking to promote these things. There is the lust of the heart are not being stopped. The second thing Romans chapter 1 tells us is that there will be dishonorable passions amongst these people. Uh, I would say this, a, a homosexual revolution. Check out Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. 
For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This is a sign of the outpouring of the wrath of God. Then Romans chapter 1 gives a third sign of the outpouring of God's wrath. It's a, it's a progressive, progressive steps. And the third step is this, a debased mind, corrupt thinking or the reprobate mind. Look at Romans chapter 1 verse 28 to 32. And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, gave them, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The debased mind, this is where our nation is at. It's approval of those who practice these things. So Paul tells us about the effect on the body, but he tells us that it plays itself out in, with, a, uh, with an effect on the mind. Again, this is a statement of fact that something actually happens to the mind when the natural is abandoned for the nat unnatural. You know, they're trying to argue with science that there is something psychologically and physiologically different about the mind of a person who practices, you know, uh, homosexuality or transgenderism or what it is. And I would tell you, and there is. The Word of God says so. The mind... The faculty by which we perceive the world and feel and determine and judge and discern, it becomes depraved, debased, which means that it has degenerated. It has been corrupted. It is reprobate. And the shocking thing is that in Canada, the reprobate mind has reached the highest seats of power. And the highest seats of power have written into criminal code in Canada that which is against what is obvious in creation on the outside and that which contradicts the conscience on the inside. They have formed their position on the basis of sentimentality and pragmatism. And from there, they have built out a position, a rationale that is actually irrational in its conclusions and it's corrupt. It's the fruit of corrupt thinking. In the kingdom of God, rather than forming our rationale from sentimentality, we do this. We place our faith, church, in the word of God. We place our faith in the word of God. And the question for every human being always is this. Will you form your rationale on sentiment or on faith? We place our faith in the word of God. And then we build our rationale from there. We build our worldview from there. Again, what does Genesis 1, 27 and 28 say? It says this. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. We place our faith in those words because they're the word of God. And from there, we build a rationale by which we interpret the world. By experience, we discover this, that God's way and God's word is best. It's completely and totally rational. It's logical. It makes sense. His word is true. Now, Paul says that the wrath of God, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress truth. It is the wrath of God that allows a person to continue in sin. But the Bible also says this, that the righteousness of God is revealed by faith. By faith. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven and the righteousness of God is revealed by faith. We have the wrath of God and the righteousness of God. Now let's look and see what Paul says about the righteousness of God. Romans chapter 1 verse 16 and 17. He says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for, it is the right, for in it, that is the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul is saying this, you want to live right before God in this world, then you must live the life of faith. And he says this, that the gospel is a very powerful thing that inherent to the nature of the gospel is power. The gospel is inherently powerful because it reveals the righteousness of God and the ability of God to save a man or woman from sin. You know, part of gender transitions and sexual expressions and all of these things is people wondering why they exist. What is their purpose? For what were they made? For why do they live? And people are taught that, in a, you know, in the worldview of our culture, that human beings evolved, that they descended from lower life forms, that they're the result of an accident in the universe. The worldview of our culture deceives people into believing that money and fame and possessions will give their life purpose and meaning. The worldview of our culture deceives people into believing that sexual relationships and identity outside of God's design will give their life meaning and purpose. People wonder why they exist and if life is worth living. And the truth is this, God loves them. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. He has designed you with plan. He has designed your life with purpose. He has designed you to know him and to be known by him. And this awful thing called sin has messed it all up. And God in his mercy and in his grace, because of his great love, God sent his son Jesus to set things straight. He sent Jesus, the perfect man. He sent Jesus as the fullest expression of the father's love. 
the wrath of God revealed from heaven and Jesus offered himself as your substitution. Willingly, the word of God tells us that Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place. Jesus died for our sin. The punishment for our sin that we deserved, he took it. He was buried. He died, he was buried, and he was raised to life, and he ascended into heaven. And the word of God says that whosoever believes in him should no longer experience separation from eternal God. They will be given the gift of eternal life. The gospel is the power of God. And in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel reveals the virtue of God. It reveals his goodness. It reveals what God says is right. The gospel reveals that all the time God is good because he is righteous. And because God is good, he will neither thoughtlessly wink at sin nor will he wipe us out because of our sin. Rather, he makes an offer to wash away our sin through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. You know, when I think about this topic, I would just say to you this, that to experience the righteousness of God, it's a step of faith. It's easy to come to Jesus. It's a step of faith to say, I believe, I believe, Jesus, that you died for my sin. I believe that if I turn from my sin in repentance and turn to you in faith, that you will forgive me my sin and purify me from unrighteousness. You will make me righteous like you are righteous, as though I had never sinned. And when that happens, when a person puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, such identity reflects through our sexual identity. What happens on the inside works its way to the outside. Look at, I believe in conversion. I believe in conversion therapy. Be saved in the name of Jesus Christ. The outer man is an expression of the inner man who is born of the Spirit. Do you want to be right with God? then come to him by placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on him and his cross and his resurrection and turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. Jesus came to set us free from the wrath of God and to bring us into a righteous relationship with the living God. I love this. It says this in Psalm 118, verse 5 to 8. People are in distress in this world. But the psalmist says this, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. If there's one thing that we believe as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's this, that it is better to take refuge in the word of the Lord than the word of a man. It is better to take refuge in King Jesus than in this world. And Romans chapter 10 verse 13 tells us this, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know, as we consider these things, there's really two responses that you can have to Jesus. One is that you can come to him in humility and in repentance. You humble yourself before the Lord and you say, Lord, I acknowledge 
What you call sin is sin, and what you call is righteousness is righteousness. And I've fallen short of your glory. I have participated in sin. I humble myself before you. I repent and I turn from it and I ask you to forgive me. Wash me clean. Give me the gift of salvation and eternal life. That's one response. Humbleness and repentance. The second is this, that you resist and you reject. That you resist and you reject. And when that happens, the word of God tells us that the wrath of God will just continue to play itself out in your life. Let's turn to Jesus. Let's place our faith in his word. As we look out upon this world, we form our worldview by faith in the word of God. From there, we build our rationale, interpret sexuality, marriage, biology, and we trust in the Lord Jesus. It's a position of faith. And here we stand as a church. Can you stand with me? I'm going to invite Martin to come and we're going to close in song. Lord Jesus, we turn our hearts towards you this morning. Lord, we pray that you would fill our hearts with love and compassion. Jesus, I thank you that you spoke the truth in love. And Lord, we do that very thing this morning. God, we don't act towards anyone with hearts of judgment, looking down because we have arrived somewhere better. Lord, we are sinners saved by your grace, dependent upon your mercy. There but by the grace of God go every one of us. But Jesus, you have brought us into the kingdom of your righteousness. We believe in you, Jesus. We believe what you say about sin and we believe what you say about faith. And so, Lord, in repentance, we turn from our sin. Lord, even for those present here with us this morning, if there are areas in their life that are out of order, God, I pray that you would bring order today. I pray, God, that they would not be able to go headlong into the wrath of God, but repent, that you'd lead them, Lord, to righteousness. Jesus, we trust you to change our character to shape us, Lord. Form our thinking, God. Help us, God, to interpret the world on the basis of your kingdom, to love those inside and to love those outside, to share truth and share the gospel. We thank you, Jesus, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Lord, no one's beyond your reach. No one's gone too far. No sin is too deep. No sin is too great. The blood of Jesus can cover it. So, Lord, this morning we humble ourselves to say we need you, Lord. We need you to change us. We need you to conform us into your image, Lord. We need you to help us build our rationale and our thinking on the basis of faith in your word. God, this morning we confess, Jesus Christ, your Lord. Your Lord. Be glorified in us, Lord. May we give thanks to you in all things. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.